Australia's Uranium Opportunities by Keith Alder Recorded by Logan Smith with the permission of the Alder family Chapter 10 Uranium and its Enrichment International Developments The Commission had decided early in 1970 to do a preliminary market survey for the future of our uranium industry and the prospects for an enrichment plant if we were to establish one in Australia. Accordingly, in May and June of 1970, Maurice Timms, Grant Miles and I did a tour of potential customer countries to sound out their attitudes to possible future supply of uranium, natural or enriched, from Australia. Miles and Alder went first to Tokyo, where the embassy arranged high-level discussions for us with the Japanese Atomic Energy Commission, the Power Reactor and Nuclear Fuel Corporation, PNC, the Ministry of Trade and Industry, MITI, and the Power Generating Organisations. The most important meeting for us was with the Vice Presidents of the nine power utilities, the potential customers for uranium and enrichment services. We explained that we had large uranium resources in Australia, which they already knew, that we were exploring the prospects for processing industries, possibly to include uranium enrichment and we were interested to know their plans for future supplies of nuclear fuel. Would they be interested in obtaining it from Australia? Fortunately, one of our number from the embassy spoke good Japanese and was able to tell us the reaction, in more detail than we got from the official interpreters. It was one of great excitement, the most interesting proposal they had heard in years. The official reaction was that although they expected to continue to rely on the Americans as their chief source of supply of nuclear fuels, they would certainly be keen to have an alternative supply for at least part of their needs. And supply from Australia would be acceptable, which was really all we wanted to know. We were also assured that the Japanese would be ready to supply capital to invest in an Australian enrichment plant as soon as Australia could guarantee that she had access to a suitable technology. The reasons for their interest in an alternative supply for at least part of their needs was given to us informally, not in the open meeting. They were, firstly, that they would have no control over price from a single supplier, and secondly, they could be subject to strategic pressures under the threat of fuel supply restrictions. This meeting with the utilities was a very large gathering. We faced nine power generation utility vice chairmen, and behind them, rows and rows of advisers and officials. A formidable atmosphere. What we had not realised was that one of these rows contained representatives of the press, including one from Australia. Our Japanese hosts had omitted to mention this. As a result, unbeknown to us, Gregory Clark of The Australian lodged a report which led to headlines in Australia the following day, together with our photographs, reporting Australia's firm intention to build a uranium enrichment plant to supply the Japanese with nuclear fuel. This was not what we had said at all. Fortunately, our colleagues from the Australian Embassy were able to help us compile a report covering the facts. But the damage was done. Evidently, the Prime Minister, Mr McMahon, saw the newspaper report and was very annoyed. I was telephoned in our hotel in Tokyo that night with a message direct from the PM, 
which was clear and to the point. You are to have no further discussions with the Japanese. You are to leave Japan by the first available flight and get lost until your next scheduled visits. These were to be in Italy. We had to meet Maurice Timms in Rome a few days later. I found out later, back in Australia, that the first reaction of the PM was to have us recalled to Australia. But his advisers pointed out that the press would be waiting for us at the airport, and the matter might become even more embarrassing. Hence the instruction, get lost. As a matter of interest, we sat up all night writing our report in the embassy with the aid of two embassy officers, who had been at the meetings with us and which cleared up the problem of our alleged indiscretions, fortunately. We left Tokyo the next morning on separate aircraft. Grant went to Fairbanks, Alaska, and I went to Washington, D.C. Our separate ideas on how to get lost. We duly met up with Maurice in Rome. He had brought a copy of our Tokyo report with him, so was aware of the problems we'd had. In retrospect, I believe that no harm was done, but the talks with the Japanese had made them consider for the first time that there might be alternative sources of supply of uranium enrichment services in the future, whereas till then they had assumed supply from the USA into the indefinite future. Over the next few weeks, the three of us had discussions with relevant authorities in Italy, Switzerland, Germany, Belgium and France. Maurice left us in Paris and Grant and I continued discussions with the French, which included visits and inspections down south at the Pialate Uranium Enrichment Plant, until then closed to visitors for security reasons. It was our first site of gaseous diffusion enrichment technology, which was used at Pialate for enrichment to high levels for military use and for research and submarine reactor fuels. The French were interested in us and arranged these visits because of interest in Australia's position as a major source of uranium for the future. They had already diagnosed that if we were interested in processing it at home, we would need technology and they thought they might like to be partners to supply it. They were also attracted by the relatively low cost of electric power in Australia. This was important later when a joint study with the French was set up, Chapter 12. Grant and I went on to Madrid to talk to the Spanish authorities, which was our last set of discussions for that trip. Throughout Europe, with the exception of France, we found the same attitudes to future supplies of enrichment. Everyone thought that supply from the United States would continue into the indefinite future. The main reason was that they knew that the American diffusion plants had been built for military purposes as part of the Manhattan Project to build the atomic bomb, that they were very large, complex and expensive, but probably at least partly amortised by this time, and that therefore it would be difficult for anyone starting from scratch in peacetime to compete with these plants. In other words, the idea of genuine commercial enrichment plants simply had not occurred to most of the customers in 1970. But in all cases, worry was expressed that long-term reliance on a single source of supply would be dangerous, for the same reasons as given by the Japanese. In economic terms, customers would have no control over the price, and in strategic terms, there was the possibility of political pressures aided by fuel supply restrictions. 
Hence the Australian question, would you consider supply of part of your fuel needs from an Australian plant, was met in all cases with a very positive yes. So the results of our market survey mission were very encouraging for the future development of an Australian uranium processing industry. Next, soon after the deferment of the Jarvis Bay project, the United States Atomic Energy Commission announced it was prepared to discuss the possible use of its gaseous diffusion enrichment technology offshore, in cooperation with other nations, provided that appropriate arrangements for technology transfer and security could be made. Australia was invited to participate, and I will describe this event next but it was only the first of a series of international studies carried out over the next 10 years by Australians, by the AAEC and later industry, in attempts to establish a uranium processing industry in this country. A sad tale of start, stop, start, always for political reasons which had nothing to do with the benefits or otherwise for Australia. I was personally involved in all of them, and very cynical when towards the end of the period, after I retired, I heard political comments to the theme that we are a clever country. I think we have proved otherwise. In the field of one of our greatest natural resources, not clever at all. More likely, a stupid country. Following studies with the USA, we undertook a joint study with the French in 1971 to 1972. This was very successful, as far as it went, and if it had not been terminated by political changes, would have led to a major plant being built in Australia. Then we participated in a study with the joint UK-German-Dutch consortium, Urenco Centec, in 1972-1973, the ACE study. This was followed by a joint study with the Japanese in 1976-1977 set up initially by the Labor Government Minister, Mr R. F. X. Connor, in 1974, and to be done under the control of his department, but not started until after the dismissal of that government. Subsequently, the existence of the agreement with the Japanese to do the study appeared to be embarrassing to the new minister, who did not want his department involved in it at all, so the AAEC was instructed to do the study. After that, there were studies by Australian industry on the prospects for manufacture of uranium hexafluoride, the gaseous compound which is the feed material for enrichment plants, and then a major study in which I was a consultant by the Uranium Enrichment Group of Australia, UEGA. UEGA consisted of four major Australian companies, BHP, CSR, Western Mining and PICO, which came close to concluding a deal which would have seen the start of uranium processing in Australia, under very favourable conditions and with a bright future. However, once more politics reared its head and for ideological reasons, the study was terminated without results. Throughout these studies, the AAEC was proceeding with its own research and development on uranium enrichment by the gas centrifuge method, with very promising results. During the latter part of this period of international studies, the Commission's expertise was invaluable to the Australian companies participating in what was to be the ultimate study, 
to lead to the establishment of a major plant in Australia. The knowledge and experience produced by this research program added considerably to the Australian bargaining position to ensure a good deal for us. But guess what? After almost 20 years of expenditure and effort, and with technological success achieved, the project was assessed in the light of government policies regarding the uranium industry, and closed down. Partway through this sad and sorry tale, the Atomic Energy Commission went through government-controlled debacles in two other areas of uranium policy. Firstly, in uranium prospecting and exploration. Secondly, in ownership of uranium mining. In both of these, it was acting entirely on government instructions and carrying them out efficiently. But again, policy was changed partway through the operation. I wonder how anyone can possibly conclude that the Commission lost its way. I think it should be congratulated, in retrospect, for maintaining its enthusiasm and even its sanity in the face of the changes in policy and the direction forced upon it by its political masters. However, let us look in more detail at the details of the activities of the AAEC in uranium matters and how they were influenced by changing government policies. End of chapter 10. Australia's Uranium Opportunities by Keith Alder Recorded by Logan Smith with the permission of the Alder family Chapter 11 The Washington Talks on Uranium Enrichment The conditions of tendering for the Jarvis Bay project had required all tenderers to provide details on how a nuclear station they proposed could be fuelled through Indigenous resources requiring uranium enrichment in Australia if the reactor used enriched fuel. During the final tender assessment period, the question arose in connection with the tender from Westinghouse, and officials of the United States Atomic Energy Commission, USAEC, indicated to us that they were now considering the possible use of American gaseous diffusion enrichment technology for offshore plants, as they put it and that Australia could be considered as a possible site for such a plant. Soon after the Jarvis Bay project was deferred, the USAEC invited countries from the Pacific Basin to meet in Washington, in November 1971, for briefing on the technology and proposed conditions for its use offshore, so that interested countries could develop proposals for its use outside the USA, in international partnerships acceptable to the USA. Australia, New Zealand and Japan accepted the invitation. We were told that we would be welcome to invite observers from other countries to attend the talks. As we had been talking to the French and British about the possibilities of enrichment in Australia, we invited them to attend the meeting as observers, which they did. Later in November, the USA followed the Pacific Basin Group talks by a series for the European Group attended by the UK, Germany, Holland, France and Italy. Again, observers were welcome, and our British and French friends invited Australia to be present. I was the leader of the Australian delegation to these talks, and was accompanied from Australia by Bob Griffiths, our Power Studies Engineer, and a senior officer from Treasury, Ron Gilbert. 
We were joined in Washington by officers from the Australian Embassy representing the Departments of Foreign Affairs, Trade, National Development, Treasury and Attorney Generals. Each series of talks occupied a full working week of presentations by officers of the USAEC describing their technology but in very general terms. There was no release of hard information, but much description of the sorts of conditions under which a proposal for an offshore plant might be approved. Such technical and economic data as presented was very general in nature and in some cases inaccurate. My good friend Bob Griffiths was constantly doing sums on his slide rule. Calculators were not yet available. During some of the presentations, and in the discussion periods, questioning the facts presented. So much so, and so successfully, that he earned the profound respect of the other delegates, and even of the Americans themselves. Later in the meetings, they were actually using his figures. There was a gap of several weeks between the two sessions of the talks, and we were told to stay in North America. It was probably cheaper than bringing us home and sending us back again and there was a fair amount of writing up and discussing to do, after which Griffiths, Gilbert and I took a quick trip to Canada to look at the Candu BLW reactor called Gentilly, near Montreal. This was just before the Canadians decided not to operate the system as originally designed because of the void coefficient described earlier. During these Washington talks, most of the US AEC presentations were made by their manager, production, Mr. George Quinn, who made a masterful job of dealing with awkward questions. It was clear that the USAEC had done its homework very well indeed, including anticipation of all the likely and unlikely questions. They had worked out all the answers in advance, all designed to avoid any release or even hint of classified information. So much so that at the conclusion of the second European Group talks, Bertrand Goldschmidt, then Director of External Relations, Commissariat à l'Energie Atomique of France, in thanking the Americans, added, But you have told us nothing! There was much discussion behind the scenes, as is common in such international meetings, often more important than what goes on in the formal sessions. The Australians had a number of informal meetings with the Americans, during which it was made quite clear to us that the scheme most favoured by the USA for an offshore uranium enrichment plant using American technology would be a plant built in Australia in a tripartite arrangement between Australia, Japan and the United States. It was also stated quite clearly that although Australia would have access to the technology, with one important exception, the methods of manufacture and testing of the diffusion membranes or barriers, The US would prefer the Japanese to be business partners only, with no access to technology. In the event nothing came of this American initiative, I believe because the conditions discussed as likely to apply to any firm proposal were considered too onerous by most of the delegations, which were urged in the closing sessions to go away from their groups to present proposals to the USA. Nobody did. I'm sure that one major deterrent to the participants was that under the conditions proposed, the offshore plant would really be an American plant in an offshore location. The conditions included a fair amount of control by the United States of marketing and pricing, so the criterion of an independent source of supply was not adequately satisfied for the serious potential customers.
the Australian delegation did report the prospects of a joint US-Japanese-Australian enterprise and that such a proposal would be favoured by the United States, and probably by the Japanese. But nobody was surprised when the reports of the delegation quietly vanished without a trace into Canberra. Uranium was already running into political difficulties in some circles. However, there was one important development not connected with the Americans at all, which was of considerable interest to us in the AAEC. We were approached informally by several delegates from the United Kingdom, senior officers of British Nuclear Fuels Limited, BNFL, who said they were considering the formation of an international study group to examine the possibility of the use of European tripartite gas centrifuge technology in offshore enrichment plants. The tripartite members, Germany, the Netherlands and the United Kingdom, had agreed in February 1970 to cooperate and by this time had formed two joint companies, Centec and Urenco, the former to pursue research and development in centrifuge technology. The partners had agreed to pull their results to date. Urenco was to build pilot plants and later full-scale production plants to enrich uranium. We indicated interest, subject of course to approval of our own government, and asked to be kept informed. But before any further developments with the tripartite companies, an agreement was reached in Paris in February 1972, with the French Commissariat à LNG Atomique, CEA, to carry out a joint study of the feasibility of building a gaseous diffusion plant with French technology in Australia. The details of this agreement were negotiated with government approval by Maurice Timms of the AAEC with Bertrand Goldschmidt of the CEA and André Girard, the CEA commissioner. This study was one of several carried out by the French at this time. A similar study was carried out with a group of European countries, Britain, West Germany, Italy, Belgium, the Netherlands, and another with Japan. The Japanese study was directed mainly toward economic and marketing aspects. End of chapter 11. Australia's Uranium Opportunities by Keith Alder Recorded by Logan Smith with the permission of the Alder family. Chapter 12. The Joint Study with France Our joint study with the French took place under an agreement for cooperation signed in 1969. The study took about a year to complete and involved a small team from each country, study meetings being held in Sydney and Paris in turn. The CEA established a liaison office in Sydney with M. Philip Girard in charge, and the AAEC similarly had a liaison officer, Brigadier, retired Fergus McAdey, in Paris. Each team made four visits to the other. The Australian team consisted of Mr. W.J. Bill Wright, Mr. J.J. John Humphreys, Mr. I.M. Ian Binns, and Mr. K.S. Kevin Turner. I went to Paris with the team for the start of the study and recall being told by the Commissioner, André Girard, later to be Minister for Defence, that in his view there was no need to do the study at all, because he said, with your power costs and our technology, we can beat the Americans in the marketplace. He had been told by sources in New South Wales that the plant could have electricity at six mils, six-tenths of a cent, per kilowatt hour at the switchyard, based on New South Wales black coal-fired power stations. 
and the Western Australians were promising power at only 4 mils in the Pilbara region, burning natural gas in the boilers. Both states were keen to have the industry. So was South Australia. Gaseous diffusion plants are heavy users of electrical power, and these seem to be the best prospects in Australia. There was interest too in Queensland with its black coal resources, but sites in or near the Hunter Valley of New South Wales, or in the far northwest of Western Australia, seemed the most promising. The results of the study confirmed Girard's predictions. It seemed that the plant would have an excellent commercial future. I went to Paris in November 1972 for the wind-up of the study and he said, I told you so. But on the 2nd December 1972, Australia had a change of federal government. The report on the French study was never completed, as the new Labour government did not want to have anything to do with it. The French were unpopular with the Labour Party because of their nuclear weapons policies, and particularly their nuclear weapons tests in the Pacific. As a result, the French decided late in 1973 to accept partners from Spain, Italy and Belgium, and to build their big diffusion plant at Triscotin in the Rhoyne Valley in the south of France, not far from their smaller military plant at Pialate. To provide the electricity, they built four large nuclear power stations nearby on the River Rhoyne. The plant is owned and operated today by the company Eurodiff, and has been in production since January 1979. A number of us in the AAEC had inspection visits during construction, and it was clearly a magnificent engineering achievement, bearing in mind that the research and development, design and construction were entirely French, with no help from anyone else. The reasons for the French interest in building a plant in Australia went beyond the low cost of our electricity, although that was a prime factor. As Gerard said, it should make sense to Australia. You are happy to export your coal, why not turn it into electricity and use it to enrich uranium? In that way, you still export energy, but much more cleanly and much, much more profitably. But the other reason was the availability of long-term uranium supplies. France had resources of her own, but small in comparison with ours. But it came to naught. The government changed, and therefore so did the rules of the game. And that was the end of the first really attractive opportunity for Australia to enter the large-scale uranium processing industry. However, a new prospect opened up almost immediately. The European tripartite partners, the United Kingdom, West Germany and the Netherlands, had sorted out how to arrange an international study of their centrifuge enrichment technology, first mentioned behind the scenes at the Washington talks a year before, and Australia received an invitation to participate. End of chapter 12. Thank you for listening. Chapters 13 and 14 tell the story of Australia's involvement in the Association for Centrifuge Enrichment, or ACE, as well as the Australian government and the AAEC as they tried to enter Australia into the uranium enrichment industry.